0: Turn in your Bibles again, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, we'll look at verses 37 to 45 today. In the old Western movies, when all the attention had focused on some exciting event, but the story needed to be turned back to the, uh, uh, the ongoing narrative, there was a phrase that was often used... A distinctive phrase where they would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. That's kind of how we might uh, see our study this morning. Jesus was up on the mountain being transfigured. Three of his disciples were with him there, tasting a bit of the glory of the coming kingdom of God. But meanwhile, back at the ranch. Back down in the valley below the mountain, quite a different story was developing one much less glorious than what took place on the mountain. Let me read it, Luke 9:37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Let me suggest three truths which we can learn from this account. And the first one is is, is this. Satan terrorizes those he controls. Satan terrorizes those he controls. Since 9-11, we think of terrorism as a very public act of unconventional warfare. A group like like Al-Qaeda attacking civilians and thus terrorizing the whole nation. But even in times of peace, people face terror in their personal lives every day. Terror which is just as, re- as real as 9-11 to them. In our text we encounter a man whose child suffers from seizures. Some have thought that this meant he had epilepsy, which would certainly be one of those private terrors faced by families. Can you imagine uh, living with such a disease, having seizures suddenly and without warning, being unable to control yourself and care for yourself that sounds like a life filled with terror. Worse can you imagine your child having such attacks, helplessly trying to control him so that he doesn't hurt himself, but you're powerless to see it coming and to stop it. The truth is epilepsy is terrible even for those who simply see it happen. Seldom I seldom have I felt so helpless as watching someone have a seizure. Yet this is the daily terror of thousands of families. But actually, our text does not say that the child had epilepsy, he had seizures. But this child was demon-possessed. Now, unfortunately, because some of the symptoms sound similar, epilepsy has sometimes been thought to be demon possession, which has only increased the agony of those who uh, face this affliction. This text should not be used to promote that kind of an idea. Actually, the child's problem was much worse than epilepsy. This child was possessed by an evil spirit, which terrorized the boy and sought to destroy him and his family. That evil spirit seized him, causing blood-curdling screams. It threw him into violent convulsions, during which he foamed at the mouth. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that on occasion that evil spirit attempted to throw the boy into a fire or throw him into the water to destroy him. This child is terrorized by a spirit sent from Satan, bent on his destruction. Beware of the deceitfulness of the evil one. You would never be tempted by an invitation to have your body seized, to be thrown on the ground, or go into convulsions, or to fear for your life in the midst of all. That would not be tempting at all. Oh no, the evil one does not work like that. He's way too devious to ever let you see where he would take you. Instead, you will be enticed with promises of pleasure and easy wealth, with illusions of enjoying the good life without the sacrifice of hard work, with fantasies of exciting sex and powerful influence over others. But there at the foot of the mountain, where the crowd gathered, we learn what Satan's control really looks like. He wants to terrorize and destroy you and your family. That's just how the evil one is. This boy did nothing to deserve this. This father did nothing to deserve the terror which he, in which he lived. This is simply the evil one showing his true colors. Make no mistake. Satan terrorizes those under his control. That's the first truth I think we should learn from this. And there's the second truth. Faith has no power in itself. Faith has no power in itself. These days, all kinds of people call themselves people of faith. Indeed, it's now commonly believed that there is power in faith. Power to help the healing of our bodies. Power to bring sunshine and joy into a dark situation. Power to build up and strengthen those who are downtrodden. If you pay attention to what you're hearing, this is all around us. Not a discussion of who has divine power so that we might believe in him. But a discussion of the power of our faith. Power that we wield by believing something to be so. Just out of curiosity, I did a brief little uh, internet. Of faith. Amazing what you find on the first page of, uh, of, uh, of answers. From one site we get these little gems. Quote, every human has the power within him to achieve any heart desire, but it is the level of belief we have in ourselves that determines the result we get. Whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, he can achieve. Or another, from another site. our modern knowledge, while it may tell us about the external side of nature and the outward man, is still ignorant of the inner forces which exist in both spiritual and divine powers lie dormant in every human being. Oh, we hear this on a popular level every day. Believe in yourself. Believe you can do it, and you will. But in our text, we see just the opposite. We see the powerlessness of faith in itself. I'm talking about the disciples and their inability to deliver this man's possessed child. Oh, the disciples had reason to believe that they could deliver him. They had exercised divine power before. At the beginning of this chapter, we read of Jesus sending them out to heal the sick and to cast out demons as they preached the kingdom of God. But now... Here they stand, powerless, in the face of this evil spirit. Undoubtedly, they believed that they had the power to deliver this child. They had done so before. Indeed, it takes some significant amount of faith to step up and attempt to cast out a spirit, doesn't it? And we know they tried to deliver this boy. I would suggest they probably had more faith than most of us. But they could not help him. So what was wrong? Well, when Jesus comes, he rebukes them for their unbelief. Though they had faith enough to try to exercise the power Jesus had given them which shows us how deficient faith in itself can really be. Consider how this deficient faith develops. In the midst of some weakness, we cry out to God for help. And he does something wonderful through us, and we're grateful. Perhaps he blesses us again with some other things. And soon we begin to believe that We can wield the power of God by just asking him, believing it to be true. And before we know it, we're actually believing that the power is in our faith. Now that may work for us in the little inconveniences of life where you can deceive yourself. But in the face of the terror of the evil one, your faith, my faith, like that of the disciples, has no power in itself. Tim Keller, writing on a parallel passage in Mark, explains it just this way. Let me quote what he says. The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of un. Belief, For it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than God. It was ugly, and Jesus would not tolerate it. His rebuke implies that the disciples are in many ways no better than the teachers of the law. To refer to them as an unbelieving generation means they are indistinguishable from unregenerate men who demand signs, but are fundamentally untrue to God. I suggest that's what's wrong with so much of our Christianity. We reduce it down to a bunch of things we do, rules we obey, just like any other religion. And in doing so, we transfer our trust back to our own faith. We start believing we can measure up and God will bless us. And we diligently practice our religion, we take pains with it, and soon we're pretty proud of how we're doing. We're not like those worldly people out there who skip church and go play, who, who party too much and live large. No, we're serious about our faith, we're, we're, we give due diligence to it. But suddenly when true evil comes our way, perhaps a tragedy that we absolutely cannot comprehend, or perhaps an unexpected but terribly seductive temptation, however it might confront us in the face of true evil, our faith, which looked so good on Sunday, proves powerless to deliver us. For faith has no power in itself. It is only a tool by which we in our helplessness look away from ourselves to someone else. Which brings us to our final point. Only Jesus can deliver us. Only Jesus can deliver us. And lots of good stories, books and movies, characters are placed in a hopeless situation, and then the hero rides in to do the impossible and and deliver them. And there's an element of that in this account. The disciples are powerless, and the father is frantic and disillusioned, and the, the child is being tormented, and into that scene walks Jesus, who is able to deliver. Everyone seems to recognize that Jesus is the answer to this situation. The father begs him for mercy for his child, confident that Jesus can do what his disciples were unable to do. The evil spirit, seeing their doom coming, seized the boy anew, throwing him into violent convulsions, for they recognize who is here and what's coming for them. But Jesus was willing and able to deliver this child as he had delivered so many children before him, before this. He called for the child to be brought to him, and with a simple but authoritative word of rebuke, he cast the evil spirit out and healed the child and gave him back to his father. And the crowds were amazed at the greatness of God demonstrated in Jesus. Once again, Jesus did what he has done 12 times before in Luke, in this ministry in Galilee. He did the impossible he proved his ability to deliver us now you would think Jesus would then be pleased with this he had repeatedly proven his power and hordes of people had witnessed this and, and seen the signs and wonders and crowds were beginning to believe in him and follow him but instead Jesus is preoccupied with his coming suffering and death So in verse 43, in the end of verse 43, we read, While everyone else was marveling at all Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Why is Jesus so focused on this? Why is he not rejoicing in the miraculous healing that has impressed everyone? Why is he not trying to organize his followers into a political party to take power and bring about the kingdom? Why is he not appointing advertising people to get the word out about his coming kingdom? Because Jesus knows that he alone can deliver us, and that deliverance takes more than a scattered miracle here or there. To deliver us, he must defeat the evil one once for all. He must conquer not just one evil spirit possessing the child. He must conquer the whole satanic dominion over the earth. It's not enough to heal a few people who are sick. To deliver us, he must remove the root of sickness and, and death, which is sin. Sin must be forever... Paid for and removed from his creation. It's not enough to give people grace for life's troubles. To deliver us, he must remove the curse under which we live. He must restore all that was lost in man's fall into sin. Death must be swallowed up by new life. And this complete deliverance can only be accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection. He must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified, paying the price of human sin and rebellion. He must be raised from the dead as God's glorious king. Only then will he gather his kingdom, those for whom he gave his life. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, he says in verse 44, as he tries to explain. But the disciples did not understand this at all. Jesus had told them this before, and he will tell them many more times. But such a plan to save was beyond their comprehension. It seemed to contradict everything they thought they knew about the Messiah. In fact, according to verse 45, they understood so little, they didn't even know what to ask him. But Jesus understood. And from now on, in Luke's Gospel, we will see Jesus preoccupied with his passion. In verse 51, we will read of him setting his face toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus has become a Messiah on a mission, for only he can deliver us, and that only by the cross. One and I must tell you, our natural condition is much worse than we might have suspected. Satan holds us captive to do his will. We are by nature his children, subjects of his dominion of darkness. And though, we may, though he may entice us with uh, desirable things, he has a long record of terrorizing those under his control. And this morning I also tell you again that all our hopes for deliverance are in vain. We can try to live a good religious life, but we will still be subject to Satan's tyranny. We can labor to keep the law, but we will never keep it well enough. And the very law we tried to keep will condemn us for our failure. We can have great faith. We can believe everything is possible. We can believe in ourselves. But apart from Jesus, our believing only turns to disillusionment. But Jesus can deliver us, even from the bondage to evil. So the weakest soul who turns his or her her, uh, hope away from self and trusts in Jesus, That one will be delivered from sin and death, delivered from Satan's tyranny, and will inherit eternal life with the Lord. That was the experience of this father, of the demon-possessed son. Luke doesn't tell us this, but according to the other gospel accounts, Jesus asked the man if he believed. And a man replied with his classic statement, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, he had no faith in his faith. But he turned his pitiful, powerless faith toward Jesus. And Jesus delivered his son. Jesus alone can deliver us as well. And that's his promise. Recorded in John 8, I tell you the truth, Jesus said... Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Father, we so quickly want to fill our lives with ourselves, and with our selfish efforts, and with our homemade solutions. So thank you for the reminder that what we're up against is an enemy who would destroy us in spite of the way he entices us. And thank you, Lord, for the reminder that the answer is not just in our believing that something can happen that isn't happening, but the answer is in you, Lord Jesus, who are able to deliver us. But thank you also for the reminder that your agenda is not just to relieve every problem we have today. But Lord, your great plan is to remove the the root of the problem from your creation and bring us to glory. So give us a heart to trust you. To look away from ourselves and look to Jesus however pitiful our faith might be. Lord, may it be directed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.